good morning back at Gallows and um, it's about five foot and it's woolly as and a few guys out but it's pretty messy they're pretty keen probably getting a couple of turns on it it's been a bit wild lately we've got a lot of water moving and when was it oh Saturday yeah Saturday I jumped off the rocks no one out it's wild and um I had a headache, didn't really want to go out, felt sharky, got like a token wave, came in, heading up the creek, and the rip was really strong, like I've said before, like a flowing river, as the water was draining out of the estuary. And I stopped to watch a woman try and swim across the river, just to make sure she was okay. And then, as we were walking up the... Um, creek a little kid come flying down on his boogie board he was about to get swept out to sea so i'm glad i went in because i just managed to hook him in we had to get him back across the water poor kid was saying you know man if you get washed down there it's like seven seven or eight if you get washed down there you know you could get swept out to sea and you're gone and this kid's like <laughs> oh did you see them fish Oh, I saw an oyster. Oh, <laughs> anyway, so I'm happy for that. His grandparents came across. We had to go right up the estuary to get him back across. I had to tow him across with my surfboard. Put my um, leg rope on his, around his wrist and then just towed him across on his boogie board across the creek. And his grandparents... Nearly having a heart attack running down the headland. Mum, uh, grandma's swearing and cussing at the husband. You bloody rat! <laughs> and then when she got to me, she's like, oh, thank you ever so much for looking out for him. I've been looking through this section of the um, book as well, and... I've got accents from London. I've got my mate Lee and um, a dude from Nottingham. And I actually... <laughs> I had to message them and ask them how to do their accents again. So I might even try and get them to be in the script. I'll just say, can you say this, this and this? And then I could glue it in the script so it sounds more authentic. Okay, we're rolling and paddling. When I got back to Perth, Brian buggered off. Now I know what it feels like. Brian, you left me. Well, it was two and a half months, so <laughs> he'd, he'd headed off towards Sydney. And um, actually, I had a cousin who lived on the coast at Ocean Shores in Perth. And um, I'd knocked on her door. And she's a lovely lady, Susan. And a hubby, Steve. And the kids. She's got loads of kids. Well, she had three kids. Um, the huge lobby of Susan's house with its polished floors and antique furniture looked more like the entrance to a museum. My backpack looked out of place wherever I set it down. Yeah, she looked after me. <laughs> it's a bit too much, actually. It's like one extreme to the other. Being treated like crap. The cook at the um, shearing station sticking a knife in my ass when I tried to grab a carrot off the table. Um, and then Susan's like, are you okay? Are you sure that's enough? Are you <laughs> Are you all right, Chuck? <laughs> On a hostel notice board hanging with one drawing pin, a photocopied picture of a man sat on the wing of his old Toyota Corolla. Need a lift to Sydney? Share petrol and expenses. Telephone Gerald on 04 blah, 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 blah. Gerald would have been around 35. He was Austrian and had sung a solo in Notre Dame when he was a kid. I think he was a choir boy. He read newspapers, drank lattes, when lattes weren't that much in fashion in Australia, 
and he had a certain dignity that shone through his travel-worn clothes. He told me to meet him at the Lucky Duck Hostel in the town. If I was compatible with the other passengers, we would head out early the next day. The Lucky Duck pub and hostel had been condemned, and this was the last day of trade before the bulldozers rolled in. I walked through the bar, and a guy who'd been asleep looked up at me, growling, <laughs> Back to reality, I thought, smiling to myself. Although I, I really enjoyed the days of luxury at my cousin's, like I said, I'd been pampered a bit, and back to the rough, it had a certain real-life appeal to me. I think just roughing it, it, keep, and it keeps you more appreciative of stuff. And life's much more interesting when you've got to do a bit of battling, I reckon. The hostel owners didn't give a damn what happened to their hostel at this point. It was more or less a free-for-all. People barricaded themselves in empty dorms with intoxicated lovers, and the smell of dope hung in the corridors. In the mornings, the shower in the mornings. <laughs> there were two mornings this day, because there was two moons. Uh, no, uh, in the morning, the showers ran out the last of the hot water. We could have walked around, but we passed our gear and a couple of useful pans through the kitchen window. I climbed out into the car park through the window for the hell of it. I'd just read the book Papillon on Dave's Magica, and I imagined myself making some amazing escape from the penal settlement. Fully laden, the Corolla was on its ass. I squeezed in the front passenger seat. Matthias, an East German guy, and Rob, a Dutch dude, in the back. Somehow I got shotgun. Don't know how. Um, 6,000 kilometers without even being, being able to see each other for a wall of rucksacks, milk crates, pots and pans. In the forests south of Perth, we climbed a 180-foot carry tree that was used as a fire lookout, shaking on the rebar pegs that spiraled around its trunk. That was scary, man. We crunched our way across white as snow salt lakes and on the highway dodged blue-tongued lizards that basked in the sun. When we reached the Southern Ocean, Gerald turned east along the Nullarbor Plains. I think there's a section there, it's got one straight section of road that's absolutely perfectly straight for a hundred kilometers. The, if you look up the Latin name of Nullaboy, it means something like boring as fuck. No, something like that. I can't it means devoid of trees or something like that. Um, damn, let's go. Sometimes a dingo or emu might take a chance and cross the highway in front of us before disappearing back into the scrub. Herds of cattle bowled over by road trains again. Wedgetail eagles and carrion crows landing on roadkill, pecking holes and ripping off flesh. Camels brought here by the Afghans wandered around the desert. It was a fascinating sight. I think, actually, Australia's got the largest population of wild camels in the world. And like a lot of things, goats, camels, pigs, there's a big problem with feral animals in Australia because they're all thriving. Um, I was so overcome with excitement at seeing the camels. I jumped out of the car and wandered across the desert toward them. They started backing away. I started jogging. They started to trot. I started running. They ran. I sprinted. I was so taken up by the chase, I was almost a mile from the car, deep in the spinifex. There's probably heaps of brown snakes out here, taipans. I was probably wearing thongs as well. To the south, the plains ran out, stopped dead and dropped off into the unforgiving Australian bite. We lay on our bellies and looked down into the abyss. It's amazing. There's so much sea life in the Australian Bight too. 
and there's been lots of protests lately to stop them doing uh, like that seismic testing for oil because the seismics affect the whales on the sonar and other animals. It's like just a paradise full of beautiful marine life. But dangerous also and gets massive swells from Antarctica. So like, you look over and there'd be a perfect wave but there's no one surfing and you're like, no, I ain't going out there. Um, there we go. Gerald found a dried old snake and insisted it lived on his dashboard where it toasted and reeked in the midday sun. In the cooling desert at night, amongst the spinifex, we would sit about the glowing coals of a fire. A sky without light pollution, a zillion stars. A scorpion scurried in our shadows and took a nip at Gerald's hand. Luckily he moved it. I don't think they're lethal. They just hurt a lot. Gerald was a nudist. He wandered around naked in the freedom he found on these beaches of isolation. And Matthias just followed Gerald's lead. Rob and I were more prudish. We were uneasy about being naked amongst only men. Not sure why. <laughs> and I'm not sure about Gerald either. He was kind of trying to encourage me to get naked. You have a good body, which you should... Uh, Show it off. I'm like, mm, nah, not my gig, bro. Not with you. Um, <laughs> on one occasion, the small East German guy, Matthias, ran along behind us as we were jogging along the beach. He was la laughing insanely. He's willy whipping the air. It's like, dude, it's just, I don't know, it's too much information. We body surfed hu huge waves in a powerful ocean that we didn't know enough about. Yeah, we stayed at a place called Streaky Bay, and when you read up about these places where we were body surfing, um, I found out that there's great whites just prolific in these areas. <laughs> and also the rips, like swimming at places that are known for massive waves and like gnarly rips. Because... Like um, Margaret River around Perth and the whole of the southern coast, they just get monster swells from the south. And it's deep water into shallow, so it doesn't... On the east coast where we live, the continental shelf is quite shallow, so when the waves come in, even when they're massive, don't get me wrong, they still kill you and you still can get 20-foot waves, but it slows the power down more on the shallow it take the friction takes the power out of the waves, whereas in the areas where there's massive deep ocean and then abruptly going into shallow ocean, which is like Hawaii as well and Tahiti, then you just get this overwhelming power. So yeah, we were lucky we didn't get dragged out to sea or munched on. Um, in a laundry room in St Kilda, Melbourne, I sat on the front loader swapping tunes with a Swiss busker called Claudia. A Japanese girl, Yumi, cooked me dinner. The traffic began to thicken, the lanes increased, and before long we were unfolding ourselves out of Gerald's Corolla in the back streets of Surrey Hills in Sydney. And now, actually later on living in Surrey Hills, Gerald really matched that suburb because um, not not the gay element because I don't know if he was gay or not but it doesn't matter um, it was the cultured side of it because there was a real culture in Surrey Hills red lights fights and DJs Dick Smith was in town I sat in his apartment I sat in the chair where only six days ago the lady who had messed her life up in England had sat before she flew home. It was a shame, but then maybe it was never going to happen. Just one of them times that finished too soon, and that's what made it seem special. The city and Dick got on well. 
He's blagged his way into a job as a DJ in a nightclub called the 77s on the edge of King's Cross. And under his lead, it wasn't long before I was back into the late nights and midday hangovers. Sunday morning, walking the streets of the city in Saturday night clothes. And wanting to get home and wash the smoke from my hair. Escape was soon on my mind. I decided to go and see Matthias and Rob. We're going to try and hitch together up the East Coast. Their hostel was in King's Cross, where touts hovered outside the strip clubs trying to tempt people inside. Come on, lads, private show, 50 bucks. A drug-deprived woman sat on her ass in the piss-down rain, crying and screaming. Nobody stopped, including me. We made big rings around her and carried on. An old guy had fallen and smeared his nose across the footpath. His breath and skin reeked of the good stuff. He was still in a daze and looking at the blood on his hands. I helped him to his feet, but he was going down again. I propped him up against a wall. His thumbnail broke the skin on the back of my hand, and a few days later, my, sh my shaving cups turned green. I had some sort of staph infection off the guy. Fuck. Oops. When I got to the hostel where Matthias and Rob were staying, it was double locked, but a traveller unlocked it. I followed her inside. I couldn't see Rob or Matthias, so I knocked on the reception window. After a while, a big Maori guy came out, wiping his eyes. God, Maori accent. Kiwi. Hey, what the fuck are you doing? We're not open. I can't fuck. We're doing too many accents, bro. Hey, bro. No, he was angry anyway. I won't even try. What the fuck are you doing? We're not open. It was one in the afternoon. Sorry, I'm looking for my friends, Matthias and... We're not fucking open. I'm sleeping. Okay, well, can I just tell my friends I'm around? Do you want to fuck with me? You want to make me angry? He kicked open the reception counter door, smashed into my guitar and chased me down the hallway, laying heavy punches into my backpack. You want to make me angry? You want to fuck with me? Punch, punch. You want to make me angry? One punch, one fuck. It's like using my backpack like a punch bag. I ran back out into the street. When I realised he wasn't following, stopped to get my breath. Far out. I didn't know what to do. Matthias and Rob were inside waiting for me, but I was too scared to go back in. I walked into town feeling sorry for myself and sat down by the harbour looking out over the water. So after the Maori escorted me out of the backpackers, and I went down into into the city. And Sydney, you know, is an amazing city. The northern beaches are much better than downtown. Smithy was living in North Sydney, which was just too buddy, too city for me. It just wasn't my gig. Just tall buildings, shady streets, lots of cars, fumes. People walking around with Busy, important-looking faces. <laughs> Remember, actually, in the city, when I first saw someone with a Bluetooth speaker or a speaker on the phone walking down the street talking to someone, it just looks so weird. But now it's like commonplace, isn't it? So I, um, I had to get out of that place. I couldn't see much when the Greyhound bus rolled into town. Just the reflection of me looking at me in the window. It was 2 a.m. I grabbed my bags from the hold. Lonely planets opened and mag lights flashed behind me. People fretted about where they were going to stay in various different languages. Where was the hostel? Where was the minibus and the reception party? I followed the noise of the ocean, which you might be able to hear today, actually. Walked over the sand dunes and lay down in some undergrowth out of the wind. In the morning when I opened my eyes, the first thing I saw were the remains of an ancient volcano. Black silhouette on a beautiful blue sky. Mount Warning. I need to find out the indigenous, indigenous name of that there. 
and I'll say that at the end. The waves rolled into the bay, broke on the back of an old shipwreck and made haze with the early morning sun. A naked young woman walked out from the surf, beads of water glistening on her brown skin. Good morning, she smiled. Byron had a good vibe, a mellow hush generated by hippies and surfers. But like all good things, Byron was changing. The developers were carving up the apple, carving up the tree. In the wrecked car park, the sun radiated in through the windows of the V-dubs and station wagons, stirring the owners of the feet that hung out of the back. These same feet moved two steps in front of the rangers, or faced waking to the banging on the roof of their van, a torch beam in the eyes and a fine. Yeah, Byron was... It was originally a whaling town, and... Um, there used to be sharks everywhere. It's just like a beautiful, natural, massive bay. It's got an awesome lighthouse. And um, a guy in WA had told us about it, a guy called Theo. He's like, you must, German guy, you must go to Byron Bay. And it's full of travelers and travelers who have settled there from all walks of life, like all different countries. So it's real cosmopolitan. Um, but basically, surfer's paradise, not as in surfer's paradise on the Gold Coast, but it's a paradise for surfers and a really hippie vibe. But they really made the place and then the capitalists overtook the place and um, they just they just wrecked it, basically. Um, apparently now they have to pay hippies and buskers to come into town to give it the vibe <laughs> imagine some of the hippies and buskers um, who own land would now be millionaires <laughs> yeah it's a weird one um, back to 1996 the hippies I'd heard stories about a hostel here known as the Arts Factory. It's like a backpackers where artists of all various types and the new age congregated. But it also had a campsite, cheaper than the dormitories. And because of this, a whole cross-section of types stayed here too. The Arts Factory backed onto a tidal plain. On a full moon, the sea came in and stole a little more of the land. In exchange for my accommodation, I dug mud out from the swamp and used it to fill old tires to form a retaining wall to try and protect the banks of the arts factory from uh, erosion. Ken, the caretaker, lived in a caravan on a hard standing above the swamp. He was in his 50s, originally from northern England. I suppose being so far away from home, our two dots of a town seemed closer together and we established a kind of far, strong kinship. When Ken was bored, he'd often insist I stop working, sit down and listen to a well-oiled story or two. A cup of tea, cordial or maybe even a beer, might appear by my side. Awesome. My daily chore to pay the rent often became a relaxing exercise. Just across the way from Ken's caravan stood a brightly painted old double-decker bus. It hadn't run for a long while and served only as a place for travellers to sleep. The handbrake must have gone because the back wheels were chocked with timber. As I worked dangerously close to the back of it, in the swamp, I painted scenarios in my mind of how I might try and escape. Which way would I dive should the bank collapse and the bus come rolling down toward me? The bus doors were open and the sweet smell of marijuana wafted my way. I could hear music and laughter. Inside, the masses of body were within a joint passing length from one another. I wanted to invite myself into the bus and become part of these goings on. But the little boy inside me appeared. 
I decided to walk on by. Then Jay saw me. Hey mate, how's, how's the work going? Jay was six foot five, a surfer with tropical ulcers and sun-bleached hair. Despite his size, he had gentle mannerisms and a soft, almost inaudible voice. His wiry sun-brown frame spread across the back seats of the bus and his head rested in a girl's lap. The girl was fingering through the spirals of his mad curly hair and smiling down at him. Do you want some? he asked, extending one of his extra long arms. And as I accepted his smoke, he looked around in what I would become to know as Jay's peculiar mannerisms. A big grin came about his face and he burst out into his infectious laughter. Oh, sorry, mate. I'm totally caned. <laughs> Later, I meandered barefoot toward the jungle campsite. That was the name. Paranoia flooded me with adrenaline. I was wasted in broad daylight. Not something I'd normally do. But from the knowing smiles people gave me, I was far from being alienated. To be a camper, one requires a tent. Bryce did that, still had hours, wherever he was. I later learned he was in Cairns working as a cycle rickshaw driver with drunk ladies slapping his backside as he rode them up hills. I purchased a tent from another traveller at a nominal sum, but during the first heavy downpour I realised I'd bought a tea bag. And I was saturated. My neighbour, Big Sal, had a great tent. It had all silver lining on the outside to keep out the heat. It had a porch, windows and everything. She told me if it rained I should come over. Don't bother about bedding. You can jump in with me, she said. And I remember that evil laugh of hers that really wasn't funny. <laughs> that night, the rains came like they weren't ever going to leave. The assault was so heavy and fast, the rain seemed to roar like an ocean. My tea bag put up a pitiable resistance. Gave up and sagged in defeat. The water rose up under me and sprayed down from above. I put my hands down to feel the ground sheet and my hands were submerged between them beneath an inch of water. It was no use. I had to abandon my stricken ship and face Big Sal. Sal! Sal, it's me, Rich! I called a warning shot into the darkness before climbing inside the bear's cave. Sal was warm like toast and in all honesty, it was as innocent as a young kid wanting to climb in bed with mum and dad. In the morning, hoping to sneak back to my tent unnoticed, I unzipped the tent door with trepidation. But Sal was right behind me. She made so much noise. And I was sprung by my fellow campers. Woohoo! Young lovers! <laughs> Absolutely nothing in it, as I told everyone there. And of course, no one believed me. After breakfast, I went into town and bought myself a bloody good tarp. The arts factory in Byron was a fairy tale place, and even more so when enhanced with THC or LSD. The dolphins, the white sandy beaches, the lighthouse with its gigantic diamond turning and glistening in the sunshine. The colours of brightly decorated people wandering around. Buskers gave rhythm to the streets, playing didge and drums. The need to move on was a weak, slumbering thought for tomorrow, and the tents in the arts factory campsite were sun-scorched and faded, and outside the makeshift chairs and tables made resourcefully from rocks and bits of old timber. The long-term settlers salvaged the movers-on leftovers, pegs, ropes, tarps, and anything they no longer needed. They crept their way into the shadiest spots and slept under a crown of intricate tarpaulins. The jungle embraced and grew around them. Artists, poets, musicians, surfers, freeloaders, lonely planet disciples, they were all here. And not forgetting the wannabe hippies. 
this fashion put you in some kind of guru status immediately without having to say or do anything. But many of these so-called free spirits were smaller minded than the drones of the cities. And it kind of got under my skin. So I wrote a poem. And I actually, we, there was like a talent night every Tuesday. And there's some pretty good acts on. Um, one night I got on stage and read out this poem I'd written about the wannabe hippies. Because everyone we met, you'd meet an occasional person dressed in low clothes who was really cool. But there was a heap that were just sort of like going back to Sumatra with that lady in the tie-dye clothes going, Oh, really? You know, I'm so chill, I'm so this. But uh, <laughs> I know I read she should have just taken a deep breath. But I wrote a poem. Um, it goes like this. Hey, man, I'm a hippie. I've done nothing wrong. I ride in this van that I, I don't belong. It spews out black smoke that I've never seen. Because I'm of one with nature, man. I'm Mr. Green. I eat only veggies, not takeaway muck. Delivered eco-friendly by big fuck-off truck. I don't have to work, steal or deceive. Put my hand in the pot, share and believe. Start to grow dreads, pierce my nose. Bright stars and spots on big baggy clothes. So open-minded. Judgmental, no way. But if you don't look like me, piss off. Go away. <laughs> oh, I can't resist. Grimass, yeah, you with the shit style. <laughs> You'll learn to know this um, name shortly. Lots of travellers carried surfboards around, Byron, and a few could even surf. It was a romantic image of surfing that drew them, riding on the ocean's back, bronzed handsomely by the sun, streaked hair, and dolphins giving you high fives. One morning I noticed this guy camped opposite, waxing his surfboard meticulously. He's called Lee. He's from East London. But he'd learned how to surf in Cornwall. Travelled down as many, many times as he could, even in winter. Surfed in the snow. He was a diehard surfer. I'd bought a board for 40 bucks from a guy called Brett. It was a Stuart 6'8 thruster. Brett said he couldn't use it anymore after he burst, bust his hip in a road accident. Lee had spent his youth as a moped lad, a.k.a. Mud. He messaged me the other day and sent me a voice message, and it said, It's a scooter, Richard. It's a scooter. So Lee had spent his youth as a scooter boy, riding around East London, avoiding the gangs of skinheads. The local skinheads were so passionate about beating up their local muds that when a neighbouring gang of skinheads attacked the mods, they beat them up and warned them, Keep your hands off our fucking mods. <laughs> when urban life got too much, Lee got in his car and pissed off to Cornwall to surf the Atlantic swells. Partially due to the hideously cold elements that daggered through his wetsuit, and partially through his natural posture, he assumed a unique surfing stance. When riding his board, he would stick his ass out, and clench his teeth in a real grimace. Practice and patience paid off, and one day Lee caught the best wave he'd ever seen. The wave was smooth, big and steep, and he glided up and down that beautiful face gracefully, positioning the protuberance of his backside to maintain his balance. He was so taken up by the excitement, he carried on straight into the flagged area reserved for swimmers. Hey, Grimace! I can't do anything but an Australian accent there. Maybe he was an Aussie, travelling the world and working as a lifeguard in uh, Cornwall, because I've known a few. Okay. Hey, Grimace! The lifeguard's voice relayed through the loudspeakers along the whole length of the beach. 
Kids looked up from licking ice creams and digging holes in the sand. Dad stopped reading his magazine, and Mum paused her fantasizing about the lifeguard with the washboard stomach. They were all looking at Lee. Yeah, that's right, you! You with the shit style! Stay out of the swimming area! <laughs> from that point forward, I, I knew him affectionately as Grimos. Lee had the qualities I looked for in a friend. He was straight speaking and had the ability not to take himself too seriously. Life was just one big ridiculous journey and nobody really had a clue why we were doing it. <laughs> I would hear Lee's voice in my dreams. Oi, Yorkshire, Yorkshire, get up, get up. Like the sun wasn't even over the trees yet. Lee was a tradie and used to getting up at 5 a.m. It's a pain in the ass. Yorkshire, come on, mate. The surf's pumping. He'd wake me up early before the onshore winds picked up and the surfers plagued the breaks. But first we had to eat. The campsite kitchen had one fridge for 200 campers. 200 bundles of food in white plastic bags wedged into one cubic meter of fridge. Every mealtime was lucky dip. The kitchen stayed open all night and in the cover of darkness, despite the warning signs of bad karma for stealing other people's food, the stoners couldn't help themselves. We walked back up through the jungle and toward the hostel kitchen where we preferred to keep our food. The place was deserted. Not even the gardener Jethro was in attendance and the swimming pool was without a ripple. The hostel kitchen was still locked, but Lee, being a chippy, <laughs> soon got into his practicalities, got out his Swiss army knife. This was a Lee special. He was always good at stuff like this. Uh, and he prized out the fly screen with his penknife, and we were inside. We were eating chocolate spread sandwiches and drinking tea when Ken appeared at the open window in his pyjamas. What the hell are you doing? With our mouths full of food, neither of us could speak. We just held out our sandwiches and cups of tea. <laughs> Ken didn't really care what we were doing. He sometimes got a... He sometimes got excited from threatening certain unruly travellers with his security torch. But this time, and with a northern connection, he let it swing. Barefoot riding a couple of old mountain bikes borrowed from the arts factory. Surfboards under our arms. We checked out the brakes. The wreck at Main Beach. Lee would stop now and again. Look around, feel for the wind direction, and then we'd be off again. We were riding along the hard sand toward the pass, which is like a point break at the end of the bay, just below the lighthouse. Well, if you want to get technical, there's another beach called Wadigos, which is right under the lighthouse, but it's on that way. I recognised a distinctive silhouette riding towards us. Long, wiry hair, long, lean frame. Water was running off him. He spun a neat sea on the sand in front of us. Hey, guys, guys. It's an offshore tellers, about two foot, Jay confirmed. And then he was getting smaller again on his way back to clean out the dormitories in exchange for his board. At Tellers Beach, Lee did a few token stretches and fastened the Velcro of his leg rope around his ankle. He waded out until the water was up to his waist, lay across his board and paddled through the white water. Come on, Yorkshire, paddle! Come on, Yorkshire! Paddle! That's probably more like it. <laughs> After three waves, I was rolling round on the shoreline with half the beach in my shorts. A wave slammed on top of me and ripped my board out of my hands. It was obvious I wasn't ready to take the drop on the big waves out of the back. In fact, I couldn't even make it out there and was finding just sitting on my board hard enough. 
In waist deep water, Lee helped me to lay across my board. Okay, Yorkshire, when I say paddle, paddle as hard as you can. Lee, you got to help me. Uh, <laughs> Lee pushed, I paddled, and somehow I caught a wave. I was surfing. This was fun enough in itself. I would have been happy to just do this for a while. But Lee was giving me the order to stand up before I ran out of wave. Tried to get to my feet, fell off the back. Tried again, took a nosedive, closed out, wipeouts, sand slams, beach rolls. One time I hit my ass so hard on the seabed with one butt cheek. The other butt cheek kept going and I nearly tore my sphincter in half. Dancing around on the shoreline with a load of beach guys, wondering what the hell I was doing. But after the pain, I was straight back out there. Look out, dickhead! While I fumbled around in the brakes on a grommet, maybe 12 years old, dodged around me. He rode high up the face of the wave and purposely carved spray to hit me. The sharp fins beneath his board missed my head by inches. I turned round just in time to see a wall of water slam down on top of me. After a week battling the white water, different muscles were forming on my back and shoulders. Because you've got, when you swim, you don't lift your shoulder as high as when you're surfing. So when you first start surfing, just raising your shoulder up that extra height is really hard. There's so much to learn. Even if you have a break from surfing, you go back and you... Your whole body seems to be... All your muscles seem to be working like you're a snake or something. As you're moving through the water, you can feel every muscle working. After a week paddling against the white water, different muscles were forming on my back and shoulders. My lungs seemed more capable of keeping me alive while I rode the washing machine, and the tips of my hair were golden from the sun. There's a thing, actually, it's called ragdolling, when you get, like, wiped out and just start pummeled under the water, and you've just got to not fight it in that moment. Just let it like beat the shit out of you because there's too much energy and then once it's had its fun and the energy's worked its way past you because that's all it is it's just uh, it actually starts out in space um, creating winds I think oh, I'll do that later but yeah it's just energy passing through water and you're just caught in that energy so just stop Wait for it to go past you, stay calm, don't use your energy, and then once it's gone, start swimming to the surface, which isn't always that easy. Uh, <laughs> uh, where, where am I? Where am I? Um, even after a week of practice, getting out to be on the break zone was unlikely for me. I so wanted to reach those perfect waves where the real surface hung out. But more often than not, I would have just made the line up and a thick black line would appear out to sea. The other surfers would scratch desperately for the horizon and me, I'd be too spent to make it and get buried and rolled. The surf would knock the wind out of me and I'd find myself scratching for the surface to breathe. And all too often, another wave would be looming and I would be down again, thinking possibly I might die. Sometimes the ocean would be kind and a flat spot between the sets would give me just enough time to make it. In this safe spot you could rest and get your breath back. Sometimes even out the back you'd get dragged out in a rip, pulled across near to the rocks and have to paddle for your life. But if life was ever worth risking, it was to be out here, where pods of dolphins might cruise amongst the surface sharing the waves, bursting out there from their element high into the sky. I was thinking how funny it is, actually, because I just saw two cyclists, probably from Holland, where you don't have to wear a bike helmet, but in Australia, you can get fined. Last couple of weeks ago, I saw a paddy van and a bike cop just swoop on this guy who had no helmet on. It's like he was carrying a machine gun or something. And <laughs> he got fine and everything, wrote a ticket. And uh, I just thought it's kind of ironic that like this, I get the helmet factor, and I do wear a helmet myself in the bush when I'm riding my mountain bike. But um, they, <laughs> you can get fined, and they won't allow you to ride a push bike along flat ground to the beach. But then they'll let you go out on the surfboard, and uh, 
without a helmet and surf with great whites. <laughs> yeah, you'll be right, mate. Get out there. It's probably like, oh, that's not our jurisdiction. There's no liability out there. You're sweet, man. Just do it. Do what you want. Yeah. Um, day was fading into night. I should have been safe back on the beach, but now is my chance. This was a popular feeding time for sharks, and most surfers had paddled in. The last remaining surfer paddled onto the shoulder of a glassy wall silhouetted against golden clouds. The setting sun filtered through the drops of water that fell from him, and the rays licking on his wetsuit set him in bronze. His board sliced through the water. He took the wave right in and ran up the sand against the grasp of the ocean. It was almost dark. I was alone, and the odds of me being eaten were suddenly increased by 50%. <laughs> There's actually a joke in Australia too. It's the buddy survival technique where you carry a knife and you stab your mate in the leg if a shark comes. <laughs> That's mean. That is mean. That's just what I heard. Inverted commas. Suddenly a turtle poked its beak through the surface and slurped some air. <laughs> Fuck. I jumped with fright, lifting up my legs as a futile afterthought. When I reached the beach... Everything was all right all of a sudden. The sharks became much smaller in my mind and I felt completely alive. Despite the danger of sharks, occasionally uh, blue bottle jellyfish, getting pummeled, drowning, the intimidation of being berated by young kids splashing water in your face, I became addicted to surfing. This is the RIP poem. Important RIP education. When the ocean meets the land, a RIP current forms to enable the water to run back into the ocean. Surfers often use this current to get out past the breaking waves. The RIP can also drag inexperienced swimmers out to sea. Unless you're a strong swimmer, the only way to beat a RIP is to join it. Go with it until it loses its strength and then swim parallel to the beach. Until you're out of the suck and you can swim to shore. Basically, where the waves are breaking is where you come back in. So, where it's the sandbanks are. Panic and waste your energy, energy trying to swim against this river and your life is in the hands of the lifeguard, if there's one around. Um, there's a beach in Sydney called Tamarama. It's a narrow slit of a beach and the rip is notorious. One evening after work, I dropped in and decided to go for a swim. The lifeguards had gone home, just leaving every single warning sign on the beach. No swimming, swim beneath, between the flags, blue bottles, dangerous rip. There were surfers out the back and the waves, waves weren't massive, so I decided to head out. Another sacrificial pommy. To be fair, like, every sign was up. That was my argument. The lifeguard thought something different. Um, and this was a poem I wrote about it. It's kind of a poem. It's kind of not a poem. There were two factors in this story, him and she. It was almost end of story, Jack and Ori, in an old newspaper, blown round on a windy day. Your man thought himself in good health, nature's wealth, a good friend of his. Till one day he put on his selective reading glasses, ran barefoot through the deep sand, past the blurry warning signs, jumped over the tide line, full throttle, blue ball, woo. Better watch out, he thought. But man, the ocean was so big, plenty room for both of us. He dived into her embrace. Come on, baby, cool in my charms, slide down my arms. And it was good while it lasted, alone, just the two of them. Like it rough, dear, she said. Well, yeah, but hang on, it's only a play fight, remember? <laughs> play fight? If you is in, you is in. Kiss my rip. I was in trouble. Shit. I looked way up onto the cliffs. People watched from well-manicured gardens. A fisherman wrapped in fluoro on the sand. 
He was a beacon on the edge of my life, but he only cared about his fish. I dug in deep, scooping through the water with my hands. He was still the same size, and I wished it, but I knew he wasn't walking backwards. She pushed me down again. Care for a drink? Have some more. Drink, baby. I've had enough. Can I go home now? That's up to you. Panic and you die. A bloke at work had told me this the day before. Have you? <laughs> it's a funny dude, actually. He kept slapping his hands together and going like this. Probably can't even hear it. Slap and rub his hands. Yeah, let's get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Panic and you die. Panic and you die. He was a lifesaver, dude. Oh. She held onto my legs for a time, but slowly lost her grip. I staggered out onto the sandy shore, straight into a bollocking from an off-duty lifeguard in Speedos. Piss off and don't come back, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My ego jogged me off the beach and up the stairs. Once round the corner, I flopped in a heap. <sighs> but I was ecstatic to be alive. So here are the little snippets. I didn't bother gluing them in. I just thought I'd leave them at the end of uh, Lee's accent. He sounds more like a city boy now. Though. He was more chilled out. And obviously it was 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. So it was, he was whispering when we're in, in Byron. But, but now he sounds like a copper knocking on your door at 3 a.m. Open up, mate. You're nicked. Hang about, hang about, it's a scooter, not a moped. Yeah. Alright Richard, I hope you're going to tell the story of the time that we were surfing and that Aussie guy said there was a shark in the water and I said I'm getting out and uh, I paddled in and got to the beach and then you was paddling, wobbling around on your board and I said behind you, behind you, thinking that you'd understand that it was a wave behind you and you should paddle for it but you ditched your board and just started to swim without your board, thinking the shark was behind you. Proper funny. Yeah, the panic on your face, mate. Oh, it was priceless. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, I mean, if you had a shark, if someone said they saw a shark and then someone else said behind you, what would you think? Thanks, Lee. You're a legend. Thanks everyone for listening and thanks Lee for taking the time to do that recording even if you did do it in the middle of the joiner's shop with the grinders grinding in the background. You plonk a Rodney. (laughs) 